All right, if you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 6. Uh, this past Wednesday evening, I began looking at this uh, chapter of 1 John chapter 2, but also dealing with the subject of assurance, of assurance. And I answered, we tried to answer the question on Wednesday evening in an introductory manner of why is assurance lost? Why do people struggle uh, with assurance of their salvation? And I made the point on Wednesday that at one point or another, if it hasn't happened to you yet or it has happened to you in the past, I would submit to you most of us, if not all of us, have struggled with the assurance of our salvation. Uh, it is not difficult for doubt to creep into our mind, and we ask ourselves the question, am I really the Lord's? Do I really belong to Him? Is He really mine, and am I really His? And so oftentimes when we lack assurance, uh, it's often not because there's something wrong with us, per se, but that often our grounds for that assurance is faulty. Uh, we are trusting in something else or something more than the blood and righteousness of Christ for our salvation. So we dealt Wednesday with the loss of assurance and then the gaining of assurance and gave a very broad overview. We read the entire chapter of 1 John 2 and I intentionally took us to 1 John 3 this morning in order to see these principles continue to go throughout this epistle of John. Uh, if we were to uh, look at this passage or this chapter as a whole, uh, we see that the Apostle uh, John here uh, was meaning to give this chapter as a comfort to believers. Um, now, he's giving them comfort because they are under a very real knowledge of their own sin. In other words, they know that sin is present. And yet he's comforting them with the reality that as they observe the commandments of God, that as they walk in those commandments, that they are walking in a imitation of Jesus Christ. Uh, the commandments we even read in 1 John 3 are carry, carry over from 1 John 2. He calls them to brotherly love. He says it's one of the great evidences that we are children of God, that we, we can say that we are of the faith because we love the brethren. Uh, he also gives the reasons why we should love the brethren. Uh, in this chapter, he also exhorts them, and when we get there, to turn from the love of the world. Uh, to love not the world and not just he's not talking about the creation. He's not talking about not loving uh, the mountains and the oceans. He's, he's, he says don't love the world system. Don't love what this world is really striving for, what this world is all about. Uh, he also warns against the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And he says those things are not of the Father. So he says those loves and the lust and the pride, uh, those do not come from the Father. So he exhorts them to turn away from those things. But he also cautions them later in the chapter against false teachers. He refers to them or calls them antichrist. Anyone who teaches that there is salvation in any other besides Jesus Christ is an antichrist. Uh, if you are trusting in your works to save you, that's antichrist. That's not what Christ has taught us. That's not what the Bible teaches. And he exhorts them to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ. 
and to persevere in the faith. But in the very first part of this, he declares that the purpose of the writing of this epistle, don't lose sight of this, is to prevent them from sinning. At no point in this epistle, and at no point in chapter 2, does John say, because Christ has paid for your sins, that you don't have to stop sinning. He says the opposite. He's calling them and comforting them in the reality that, yes, you have an advocate. You have the propitiation. But under no circumstances are you to continue in sin. Sin is to stop. Now, again, he's not talking about sinless perfection. We cannot reach that. But he's pointing us to that the cause of a lot of our sins does come out of the reality that we neglect his commandments. You see, his commandments are not grievous. They're not burdensome. If we keep his commandments, they are meant for our good and for his glory. They're not meant to be the killjoy. They're not meant to keep you from all the fun, pleasurable things in life. They're meant to comfort you and to correct and keep you in a proper walk. Again, our assurance is often based too much on what we think we are contributing to and how we're contributing to it. But he does declare this. He says, and he says this in 1 John chapter 1, if you sin, which you will, if you sin, you have an advocate. That's what leads us into chapter 2 and verse 1 when he says, I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, which they will, he gives this comforting thought. We have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. That's Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it says about Christ that he is our propitiation. We'll deal more with that in just a few moments. But that is a comforting thought to those who are in Christ today. The advocacy of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. Now, there's always a problem that we can become uh, so knowledgeable in our own mind that we neglect his commands. Some people are trusting in their knowledge of theology, but they neglect walking in Christ's commandments. Your knowledge of theology is not to supersede walking in his commandments. You might be a grand theologian. You may be able to sit down and write a commentary, but if you do not obey his commandments, God is not pleased with that. Theology and understanding of theologies and theology such as systematic theology, you might not even know what that means today, and that's okay. But theology is great. We need theology. We need doctrine. But we cannot do those things in the neglecting of walking in his commandments. There are great theologians who struggle with assurance because they don't walk in his commandments. See, the commandments are not burdensome. And John deals with that in this chapter. He also deals with the reality of the best evidence of your assurance is to have true knowledge. That knowledge and assurance is demonstrated or evidenced by your love to God and your love to the brethren. And we witness that in the keeping of his commandments. So he says, if you are in Christ, then you are going to walk in these truths. Even in 1 John 3 that we read, he said, if you do not walk in these truths, the the Father's not in you. God's not in you. If you profess to be a Christian today, then walk in his commandments. He gives them the example of how they should walk. 
Now on Wednesday, I kind of established this fact and I knew this is what I was doing. I knew that I was going to move this to Sunday mornings and that's why I was very intentional Wednesday about how I stated the things that I said. But we want to remember one of the key learned, things we learned on Wednesday was that the ground of our assurance rests in Christ's finished work. The ground of our assurance rests in Christ's finished work. Not almost finished, not 99% finished, but his finished work. He completed the work of salvation. Our assurance is based and it's grounded upon his work, not ours. Now we talked about on Wednesday that faith without works is dead. So if you do have real faith and you are truly in Christ, you will have evidence. Make no mistake about it, you'll have evidence. But again, remember, the most of the people's problems with our assurance is because we are placing our assurance or our hope or our ground in the wrong thing. We don't look to our works to assure us of our salvation. Although they will be there, that's not where you find your assurance. Your assurance is found in the finished work of Christ. So we look to Christ his finished work that was done on our behalf. He took our place. He took our sins. He who knew no sin died for our sin so that we could be free, that we could have access to the Father. That's your hope this morning. That's where you rest in today. Too many people say, am I doing enough works? If that's your question about your assurance and you say, I just don't have assurance because I just don't have enough works, your foundation is faulty. The foundation is Christ's finished work. The works that we do are built upon that foundation. They're evidence. Evidence that there is a, a firm foundation. So in these verses this morning, First of all, we want to look, and these will be very simple headings this morning. Verse 1, Christ is our advocate. Notice John says, my little children. Now, he doesn't mean, and I'm explain this for our children that are here, he doesn't mean that this is just directed at children that are of a certain age. This is addressed to believers. This is, a, this is an expression of compassion. It's an expression of love. My, my little children... He says, I write unto you that ye sin not. Now, I don't know any other brethren or any other person in Christ who does not want other brothers and sisters in Christ not to sin. There's something wrong if a brother, brother, or sister in Christ says, my prayer for you today is that you'll sin. My prayer for you today is that you will fall short of the glory of God over and over and over again. No, he says, my little children, it is my desire, I write this unto you, that ye sin not. Now John is never, ever, ever holding out hope that these children or these other believers can ever be totally free from personal sin. 
That'll be contrary to his own words, which he says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, when he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you come to me today and you say, I don't have any sin left in, in me, the only biblical answer I can give to you is you're a liar and the truth is not in you. You say, that's harsh. That's Bible. You deceive yourselves to say you have no sin. We all have sin. Again, he's talking to believers here. Still have that sin. That's contrary to Scripture. But he is saying, I write this letter or I write this epistle to you that you might not live in sin. There's a big difference in sinning and living in it. That you don't indulge all the fleshly lust and the pride of life that you don't walk in disobedience, that you don't behave like a person who's unregenerate. That's what he means. Don't live as if you are unregenerate. You see, it is God's will for us to walk according to His commandments. We are to walk being sanctified, being conformed in the image of Christ. We are to walk in holiness. We are to walk in a holy word and holy deeds. See, those who are truly saved by God's free grace do not condone or excuse sin. They actually condemn it. See, you condemn your own sin. So today, I don't have to condemn you. If you're walking in truth, you condemn your own sin. Why? Because the Spirit is condemning it. The Holy Spirit that lives within you, if you're a child of God, is convicting you. So do you live with a condemnation of your own sin? Now, we are very good at condemning other people's sins and ignoring our own. And that's the problem. We're always better than someone else. There's always a greater sinner than we are. Is that not right? We, there's always somebody worse than us. He said, I'm writing unto you that you sin not. Don't desire to live like the unregenerate, but rather desire to walk like Christ and to glorify God. True believers condemn and mourn their own sin. They don't celebrate it. They confess their sin and they seek to avoid it. So he says, if any man sin, as every man does, even people who are saved today, who are walking and desire to walk in the Lord, and you maybe even made a vow before God today that you were going to walk sinlessly today, uh, you are going to sin. And that's why the beauty of having an advocate is so wonderful. Again, that's not excusing it or condoning it. Don't throw your hands in the air and say, well, I can't help myself, so... I'll just sin. Then you still lack understanding of what John is saying here. If any man sin, he who has believed on Christ has been justified by the blood of Christ. As much as we hate and mourn sin and condemn it and we try to avoid it, you are still in this flesh, which means you can never be completely void of sin until you're removed from this world. Some people say the reason my assurance is bad is because I keep sinning. Welcome to the club of every other believer. We all keep sinning. We keep doing it over and over and over again. 
That's not the grounds of your assurance. Again, don't condone it. Don't excuse it. But that's not the ground of your assurance. The ground of your assurance is with this advocate, this propitiation that John writes about. Under no circumstances does a believer excuse sin, justify it, or permit it to go unjudged and unconfessed simply because it's atoned for by Christ. I said one of the three things Wednesday night that leads to our lack of assurance is unrepented sin and walking like you used to walk. If you do those things and expect God to bless your walk, you're deceiving yourself. You can't walk like an unregenerate person six days a week, come to the church house on Sunday morning, and then wonder, I'm having a hard time having assurance of my salvation. What that preacher keeps talking about, I don't know if I have that. It's not a problem with the word, and I'm not the perfect preacher, obviously. But the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. Our assurance, the foundation of it, is founded upon Christ's finished work. So what does he say? If any man sin, we have, that's present tense, an advocate with the Father. An advocate is one who goes before us. He is he who goes before the Father. He is our great high priest, the scriptures talk about. We, we hear this often. He is the one who has made intercession for us. He's the one who pleads for us. When we sin, our sin, every one of them, again, try to, try to get your, your human frail mind around this, and my frail mind, every sin we've committed or will commit was laid upon him. Now just look at this room and think about how many sins that is for even a church our size. All of our iniquity was laid on Jesus Christ, Isaiah 53. With his wounds, with his stripes, we are healed. Not with your works. The advocate pleads on our behalf. He has made a full satisfaction of the required payment. The debt that was owed, Jesus Christ paid it all. All to him we owe. That old hymn, sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it, not partially, washed it white as snow. That's what the advocate has done. He has made that satisfaction. So he goes before us. Again, an amazing part of biblical truth is that your sin that condemned you to hell will never be laid to your charge again. The sin that condemned you to hell will never be laid to your charge again. There is therefore no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. No condemnation. So that means, again, not condoning it, but there's not a single sin you're going to commit today or even enduring this teaching hour that God is going to condemn you to hell for. Even though you might feel like I deserve to be condemned to hell because of that thought that just entered into my mind. It cannot be laid to the elect again. It cannot be laid to your charge. Christ made full satisfaction for the required ransom payment. 
He already paid it. None of us, after you make the final payment on a debt that you owe, nobody in the right mind anyway says, I want to make more payments on that. That's what thinking you're adding to your salvation. I want to make more payments on my debt. Why would you want to pay for a debt that's already paid for? Why would I call my credit card company, my car loan, my mortgage company and say, you know what? 30 years wasn't long enough to pay for this house. I want another 30. None of you are going to do that, right? Nobody does that. But even more of an atrocious thought is to think that you can pay a single dime for your salvation. Because you can't. Your money, whatever your money is, is no good with God. It's as filthy rags. But Christ's rags are pure white, righteous, without sin. So he, Christ, is the advocate with the Father. Notice it says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's only one advocate. The Pope is not an advocate. The pastor, the elders, are not an advocate. The father in a home is not the advocate. The mother is not an advocate. The grandparents are not an advocate. Jesus Christ is the advocate, single. He is the advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is how he's described here. He is the advocate with the Father against whom all sin has been committed to him and whom full satisfaction has been made. 1 Timothy 2.5 says Christ is the only mediator. He is Jesus Christ the righteous. It is his righteousness imputed unto us. That's where we can now stand before God. It's imputed into us. So Christ is our advocate. Verses 2 through 3, he expands on this thought, and Christ is our atonement. Now you can see how these two thoughts, the advocacy and the atoning work of Christ, uh, they are similar. You can't have one without the other. But notice it says in another declared, very clear statement, and he, that's the advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation. Now, the word propitiation means to be an appeasing sacrifice. Kids, that means this is what God required. He required that Jesus Christ would pay what was owed. So the atoning work of Christ is a propitiation. It is an appeasing sacrifice. Propitiation also means to cover to atone for, to pardon and reconcile. Break that down for a moment. To pardon and to reconcile. Reconciliation means to put back into a proper relationship. It is to restore that, to pardon sin, to atone for, to cover. In the Old Testament, there had to be a sacrifice made every year to atone. But Jesus Christ paid the atonement once, once for all, never to make another one. There is no other propitiation that can be made because he is the propitiation. Notice the wording there. He is the propitiation. 
The word the gives us a clear distinction that says he is it. The sacrifice. So he is the sin offering. In order that the wrath of God would be appeased and not put upon us who are deserving of it, his justice, his righteousness, his holiness satisfied the Father so that sin is forgiven and he can be the just and the justifier. 1 John 4.10 says, Herein is love. We should all know this if we're in Christ today. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's always been His love first. You would have never loved Him had He not loved you first. He's the propitiation for whom? The Jew? The Gentile? He is the propitiation for all of the elect. Jews, Gentiles, every skin color, every socioeconomic background, you name it. He is the only propitiation. It's not just for this generation, but He has been the propitiation for all generations. And it's not just the propitiation for those who read this book, but for every believer throughout the entire world from the beginning of time, Jesus Christ has been the propitiation. It's an amazing thought that Christ has people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation on this planet. There is none that have been left out. Now, I know we all struggle with, yeah, but what about these people? There are people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Pastor, does that mean we shouldn't send missionaries to those areas because ultimately God has people? No, that would give us more reason to send them. Because it's by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing. The Word of God, for people who understand what this means, this ought to make you more evangelistic, not less. Your burden for people ought to grow deeper because you know what's being done for you and what has been done for you. And because of that, the result is, I want to walk in God's commandments. I'll go. It's not the hyper-Calvinistic view that says, well, if it's already predetermined, we don't need missionaries then you misunderstand the Bible. We're called to go. We're called to preach. It's by hearing the Word that He draws the elect to Himself. That's how you were drawn. If you were in Christ, you were drawn by the preaching of the Word. The Spirit. People have trouble with this. We recently finished a study on Wednesday nights about John 17. And one of the most difficult verses in there is John 17, 9, where the Lord Jesus himself says this, I pray for them. You'll see in a minute who the them are. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. 
Now you can try to do all kinds of theological gymnastics to get around that. You can try any way you want to go, but there's a reality. He says, they are those that the Father has given to me, praying for those who have believed or will believe. I pray not for the world. To simply say that God's praying for the world and Christ is praying for the world and there continues to be people who just will not come to faith is to suggest that his atonement, his propitiation failed. All that the Father has given him to Jesus Christ will come to him. That's a great comfort today. That ought to comfort you who have lost people in your family. That's more comforting than saying, I hope they decide for Jesus today. Because without him drawing them, they will never decide for Jesus. But if I have the comfort of knowing that all that the Father has given to the Son will come, I have great comfort today. Now look at verse 3. He says, and hereby, now the word hereby, an older word we don't often hear a lot in our modern English today. Hereby, as a result of what you've just read, what you've just heard, we do know that we know him. Now you could stop right there and say on those two verses alone, you can know that you know him. Just based upon what we covered. But he goes one step further. Now again, don't let this if throw you off and think, oh, this is work salvation. It's not what he's talking about. And hereby we do know that we know him, that's assurance, if we keep his commandments. In other words, if you know God, you are going to live in a desire to keep his commandments. If you do not truly know God, you won't care one way or the other if you obey him or not. That's why we talked about Wednesday night. If you think grace is a license to sin, again, maybe I'm being too bold here. If you think grace is a license to sin, you don't know God. You just don't. Now, does that mean you don't sin? No. But if you think you're saved and because I'm atoned, my sin is atoned for, Christ is my propitiation, now I can go do whatever I want, you still don't know God. The if here is not to indicate that the only way these things become so is if you walk and keep his commandments. Because here's a problem. That means nobody is going to be saved because nobody can keep them all. If that's true, that the if is totally conditional, we're all on our way to hell. Every last one of us. But he says if we keep his commandments, we're giving knowledge that we know him. Again, don't take verses out of their context. Because verse 4 explains verse 3. The greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. You see a verse, compare Scripture with Scripture, understand the context of the chapter, understand what book it is, understand is it Old Testament, is it New Testament. You begin to understand these pieces. There are no contradictions in Scripture if you take the Scripture as a whole. Now, if you isolate it, I've heard men do this, who can take verse 3 and teach works-based salvation if you just take verse 3 from 1 John 2 and you isolate it. But the problem is that's not how you interpret Scripture. Scripture is not interpreted by what you feel or what you think it should say. There's only one interpretation of Scripture. So it would be wrong for us to say, well, I see your point. I, I see how that can... I can see how the Bible's teaching works-based salvation. No! You say, oh, I just want to be kind. I'm not saying be unkind, but you can't agree that that same verse teaches two things. It's either or. And Scripture taken as a whole clearly say 
It is not about works-based salvation because he's already been talking about the commandments and sinning. So unless you can keep all the commandments perfectly for the rest of your life and up to this point, then you can't be saved by works. It pretty much completely destroys any idea. So why would your assurance come from something you can't do anyway? So throughout this earthly journey, believers do struggle with inward sin. And by the way, sin with your inward sin should be a struggle. I'm not going to hear right now and tell you that the Christian life is all sunshine and tulips. As a matter of fact, if you're not in a daily struggle with sin, you're probably allowing things to go unconfessed. See, you should be struggling daily with sin. And I'm not talking about, hey, this is like a gnat, go away. I'm talking about, I detest, I hate the fact that I have this problem that I keep sinning. I keep doing this, and I keep doing it, and I keep doing it, and I don't do what I'm supposed to do, Paul Romans 7. He detests it. Sin is not like a gnat you just swat away. But throughout this earthly journey, we are going to struggle with inward sin. We are going to struggle with doubts. Don't use your doubts as a reason to doubt your assurance. You're struggling with sin because you are not a citizen of this world. You are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. You're not meant to fit in. That's the problem. If you fit in with the world, you love it. If you're more comfortable with unregenerate people than you are with the people of God, there's something desperately wrong. But this earthly journey is going to be filled with trials, attacks from Satan and his demons. And you say, that does not sound like a very blessed life. If those things are happening to you, that's an evidence that Christ does dwell in you. The fact you're struggling with sin, <laughs> that's very telling because you're despising it and the Spirit is not going to let sin just lay there. But if you're putting all your assurance eggs in the basket that says, listen, I just need to do more good works. At the same time, you've got unconfessed sin that you won't repent of and then you wonder, why am, I'm not gaining assurance, I'm actually losing assurance because you're not dealing with the reality of what's really going on. You're not dealing with the sin in your life. And you have no desire to walk in his commandments. John Newton, many of you of course know John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, and if you know his story, if anybody could have felt like I am not worthy and deserving of Christ's grace, it would be John Newton. Before his conversion, if on, the, on the scale of how would he rate himself? A wicked man. Slave trader. Many people say after he was converted, suddenly he became this Christian in shining armor who never struggled with anything else. Here's one of many quotes that he said after his conversion. He says, "'Tis a point I long to know. Oft it gives me anxious thought. Do I love the Lord or no? Am I his or am I not? That's after his conversion. That's after being saved by grace. He still, those doubts were creeping in. John says this is how we discern daily by our experience. How do we know we're coming to know him? Look at verse, look at verse 4. He says, He that saith, 
I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So John is teaching us here that the way we discern, are we truly, do we truly know Christ is are we observing and practicing those things that will bring us closer to him? Do you look at God's commands as something burdensome? What do we think about the commandments of Christ with regard to faith, love, forgiveness, humility, works of charity, kindness, giving, witnessing? Everything that results or is a part of our daily walk. You know, sadly, what's happening in a lot of our churches is everything that's called holy living is being tagged with an improper designation of legalism. Most people who use that term have no idea what legalism is. Legalism only means that you're using something else that tells to gain salvation to Christ. It has nothing to do with holy living. Absolutely nothing to do with it, and yet I don't like that commandment, so I'll just label it legalism. We don't observe that. We got churches that say, listen, we don't want to be, we, we want to be the fun, laid-back church. We want to be the church that everybody wants to be at. Listen, speaking for me personally, I want nothing to do with a church like that. I want zero to do with it, so don't even invite me. Don't invite me to speak there. Well, unless I can preach evangelistically, then maybe. But you understand. That's what's invading. Has been invading for decades. The modern church that says, eh, we want the blessings of salvation, but we don't want to keep those commandments. Legalism. You mean your church over there, you have a way in which you do things? Why do you do these things that way? We do this way because we think that that's according to Scripture. It's a regular principle of worship. That's why our church services are so simple. I truly believe that that's scriptural. And yet, his, his commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Or this is evidence that the love of God is in you and His commandments are not grievous. In other words, those who know Christ love the Lord Jesus Christ and they love His words. His words are your rule of life. So Christ is our advocate. He is our atonement. And as you can already guess, He is our assurance. I told you, very simple headings today. And I think for a subject like this, I think simplicity is really important. Notice verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word, this is in contrast to verse 4, okay? The person who says, I know him, but does, don't keep his commandments is a liar. But, another one of those grand theological words, pivot point, whoso, whosoever, keeps his word in him, the person who keeps the word verily or truly, is the love of God perfected. Now perfected there doesn't mean without sin. It means matured and maturing. Growing. Sanctification. One day we are going to reach sinless perfection, but not on this earth. Not in this era. The Bible does tell us one day we will be with our Lord where He is. We will see Him as He is. And we will be like He is without sin. But until then, we are in a process of sanctification. 
growing, maturing. That's one of the beauties of that's one of the beauties of even a church like ours is to look out and see people at all different parts of their sanctification. We are not all at the same place in this Christian walk. And to stand up and say, that person ought to understand everything I understand, that's foolishness. We've been, if you've been in Christ for a long time or even a short amount of time, you're growing into these truths. There are truths that you are now grasping that 10 years ago you couldn't grasp. Just like Jesus taught his disciples, there's many things I have to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But yet he does say this, those who keep his word hereby, here's assurance again, hereby know we, that we are in him. We know that we're in him. The person who says, I know Christ, I'm acquainted with him. He saved me, but I have no love for his word. I have no love for his people. I have no love for his commandments. When you compare that to what he said in verse 4, that person's a liar. There's, a, there's, these, there's these teachings out there that I see and, I, I, and I'm, I'm amazed. And say, I, I'm, They say, I'm saved, uh, but I don't need the church. What? I don't need the church. You realize the church is what Jesus Christ died for? The church? And you don't need that? <laughs> Humanly speaking in the manner of men, I have to wonder, do you really know Christ if you hate the church? Well, the Bible says right here, you know that you've passed from death into life eternal if you have love for the brethren. Who are the brethren? It's the church. Now, not just any church. Anybody can put a sign out that says our church meets here. But there is no such thing as a church that is not about Jesus Christ. That means any church that's founded on something else or someone else other than Jesus Christ shouldn't be called a church and can't be called a church because that's reserved for Jesus Christ's bride. His church. If any man be in Christ, Paul says, he's a new creature. Paul used terms like bond slave, used terms like his whole life and desire was to press toward the mark. Paul's whole desire was that I may know him. Paul was continually pressing towards that mark. That's done throughout. How do we do that? That's done through his word, his teaching and obedience. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. He says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Listen, if you've tasted of God's graciousness, you want to know more. <laughs> I, I had enough. You can't ever get enough. The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you've tasted of God, true grace, you can't get enough. It's, you're never satisfied. You want to know more about Him. And then look at this final verse. He says in verse 6, He says, He that saith he abideth in Him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked so the person here who treasures the word, treasures Christ, loves the word of God, loves Christ's commandments, 
This is one of the ways that we know we are in Christ. We love Him. We love His Word. We love His will. We love His presence. You cannot separate Christ from what He taught. The modern church's view of who Christ is, again, I want no part of that either. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's good. But if you think that the modern church, for the most part, is looking at a sacrifice, a suffering servant of the Savior, they're not. They're looking at Jesus as just someone to be admired, someone to pattern your life after. No, He is the advocate with the Father. He is the propitiation. The work of atonement is through Christ alone. He's not just a good pattern or a good example. How do you know that you know Him? Because you love Him. The Bible says you, if you have a love for the Lord, you only love Him because He loved you first. He says that He and Christ are one. Is what's happening here. John is writing here, you ought to walk as Christ walked. You ought to love as Christ loved. You ought to forgive as Christ forgave. That's a hard one, isn't it? Peter said, Lord, how many times should I forgive? Seven? No, Peter, 70 times seven. Think about how, how much you struggle to forgive once. People do us wrong one time and we cast them out. That's how we are. One time, you're gone. Praise God He doesn't do that with us. The Christ didn't do that to us because we'd all be gone. But we ought to forgive. We ought to be humble. In John 15, verses 4 through 5, we could, I, I'm having to pull these verses out, of course, because we can't read the whole chapter. But John 15, 4 and 5 says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except that it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do how much? Nothing. So our conclusion for this morning just brings us to this reality that our assurance is found in what the Scriptures declare to be the case. It's spiritual knowledge. Again, from our series on Wednesday recently, John 17, 3, Jesus says this in that great intercessory prayer. He says, And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. You see, assurance is a transformative knowledge. It's something that we own and we accept God as He is in Christ Jesus. It's to accept all that Christ has declared Himself to be without exception. I accept all of Christ except for this. No, it's to accept Him in His person and in His deity. 100% man, 100% God. Fully man, fully God. Third person, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Second person, third person, the Spirit. First person, God the Father. It's to believe the entire Trinity. Some churches say, it doesn't matter what you think about the Trinity. To deny the Trinity is to deny Christ. There's no, there's no way, way about it. So this is to be an encouragement to us. This is to encourage us in our walk. We are being changed into His likeness. Therefore, we're able to discern ourselves to truly be believers in Christ by the Holy Spirit. 
And we understand that the Spirit is testifying to us that Christ is not only our advocate, but he is our atonement. Folks, when these things become true, following the Lord Jesus Christ and wanting to obey his commandments is not difficult. It's always alarming to me when people say this. And again, I'm not speaking from perfection. It's too hard to follow God. Again, speaking as in the manner of men, you have to ask yourself the question, do you really know him if it's too hard to follow God? Look at what the world will follow at the drop of a hat. I mean, I know it's silly, but our generations are determined by how many followers they have and who they follow. But when it comes to Jesus, that's too hard. Listen, we'll follow, we'll spend money. Again, take it or leave it. I'm a sports fan. We'll follow that team. We'll pay money. We'll, go, we'll travel across the country to see them play for 60 minutes. And then we say, but following Jesus is just way too hard. It's just way too hard. See, we follow what matters to us. His, his, burden, his commandments are not burdens, and it's not grievous. So I hope today we'll respond at least in thankfulness for what the Lord has done. And as we continue this series, I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. It's encouraging me, and I hope it's an encouragement to you. Well, let's finish our time together this morning, and let's sing a hymn of thankfulness, 374. Let's stand together, 374.